Welcome to Team Peds Talks, newest series focused on nurse practitioner leadership and career development, brought to you by the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners, or NAPNAP, an organization of experts in pediatrics and advocates for children. Thank you for joining us today for our episode. This series of podcasts includes conversations with expert leaders in pediatric healthcare with a focus on advancing career development and leading change. I am your host, Dr. Andrea Klein-Tilford, NAPNAP's Executive Board President. I'm a pediatric nurse practitioner, nurse practitioner director at CS Mott Children's Hospital in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and a mother of two children. Greetings. The thought of writing and publishing can be overwhelming and intimidating for healthcare providers that have not yet had the experience to write. It is not uncommon to wonder just how to get started. I am so proud to be joined today by two pediatric nurse practitioner experts on professional writing and publishing, my esteemed colleagues, Sarah Martin, pediatric nurse practitioner with pediatric surgery at Ann and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago, and associate editor of NAPNAP's Journal of Pediatric Healthcare, and Dr. Don Garzon, pediatric nurse practitioner, pediatric mental health specialist, and co-editor of Burns Pediatric Primary Care Textbook, a critical resource for pediatric nurse practitioner students and practicing nurse practitioners. Both of our guests are nationally recognized experts and have published extensively in books and professional journals. It is such a pleasure to be joined by them today. I'd like to start out with asking each of our guests to tell our listeners just a little bit about themselves. So Sarah, let's start with you. As Andrea um, stated in my introduction, I am a clinician and that's pretty much been the focus of my work, but I have had, in addition, a longstanding passion for writing, editing, and publishing. I'm currently enrolled in the Transformative Leadership Systems DNP program at Rush University and my DNP project, promoting APP publications at a children's hospital, with really my goal to be to increase the number of nurse authors at my organization and reporting of publications by APPs at Lurie sort of reflects my interest in supporting clinicians to write. For fun, I enjoy writing and in the past have completed two Chicago marathons actually with Andrea. And I'm currently training for the Disney Princess Half and am an avid sort of Disney fan. And so I'm looking forward to being at the Magic Kingdom on New Year's Eve. So my name is Dawn Garcon. I am currently a pediatric nurse practitioner for the Behavioral Health Child Psychiatry Consult Service at St. Louis Children's Hospital. And like Sarah, my focus is primarily that as a clinician. In the past, I've been a nurse educator and I've been affiliated with a number of uh, institutions uh, with the incredible pleasure of working with both undergraduate but primarily graduate students. Um, where Sarah is a, I believe, a known expert in this area and someone that we all esteem. And so I'm very honored to be on this call with her. I'm more of the accidental author. I don't think this was something that I had uh, initially a, a clear passion for, but it's something that definitely has developed as my career develops. So I think my message to everyone is that 
for those of you that are hearing this going like, oh, I could never do this, I'm living proof that you can. Well, that is terrific. Thank you both so much. Your accomplishments and contributions professionally are amazing. So let's get started. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the first time you published in a professional journal or book? So let's start with Dawn this time. So my first publication actually uh, came because when I was in my graduate program shortly thereafter, someone told me that anytime you do a presentation for any organization, you should always take that presentation and try to get it written up. And I remember thinking like, okay, so how do I do that? And, and I took like what, it wasn't PowerPoint slides, it's part of my age, this was back when we did transparencies, but, but I took that presentation and all of the research that I had done to put that presentation together and kind of use that as a template to go from. Um, my publishing as an author was an incidental thing I wrote into, I believe it was Elsevier, and, and this is again going back a while, and I had found an error in a textbook, and I wrote the editor to, to like the uh, Elsevier to say like, oh, by the way, on page 277, this is wrong, and that started a conversation with the publisher about being a reviewer, which then asked me, later ended up being asking me to contribute a chapter to a textbook, so that again... <laughs> I'm laughing because I, I, I kind of be the one that falls into things and that's, that's how I transition kind of from publishing for like journals and, um, and thing and um, journal articles and blogs and things like that to actually doing textbook work. Well, that's great. Sarah, can you tell us a little bit about your first publication? Yes. My first publication actually also sort of was um, an outcome of my first graduate work. And after I had my master's degree, I accepted my first position as a clinical nurse specialist in the pediatric ICU at Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. And at the time, they um, had actually hired two of us to um, sort of get the role back in place there. And I was really fortunate that along with myself, they had hired Peggy Sloda, who was a seasoned CNS. So that was really great for me. And she was also an avid writer. And I wanna say like back in the times, not that 1980s were that long ago, but she was one of actually the first clinical nurses to do um, a lot of writing. And so she helped me uh, publish my master's thesis, which was, um, on PICU nurses' perceptions and understanding of cadaver organ procurement in critical care nurse. And so really from that time on, I've never looked back and have sort of perpetually been involved with writing, um, reviewing, uh, editing, and in various publishing activities. Perfect. So Sarah, could you tell our listeners uh, where to begin? You know, if they have an idea for a journal manuscript, how do they determine where they should submit? How do they find a good match for their manuscript? Well, I think, you know, once you have an idea for a manuscript and depending on what your work role is in your areas of expertise are, you know, usually it kind of comes from that. But 
irregardless of your topic, I think, you know, people probably have done a bit of thinking about their topic. And so I always think of it as a little bit of a brain dump and sort of thinking about maybe how you want to develop your topic and idea. And so I always keep sometimes a, a little bit of a journal. I call it my article journal. And so it's a little book I might carry around. So when I'm starting to think about developing something, start to just write my ideas down about what I want in the paper. You know, what kind of figures am I looking for? Are there other people that I want to maybe reach out to to be involved in the um, project and just start to sort of put my thoughts together? But I think once you have your topic, as Andrea's mentioned, then you're going to look for the right um, journal. And really, the best resource I think is out there is a list that's been vetted and compiled by the International Academy of Nurse Editors and is um, housed on the um, journal uh, nurse author and editors website. And so I think it's really important, especially in these times when we have a lot of predatory journals and things going on in the publishing world, you just want to make sure that you're really looking to publish in a reputable journal. And so all of these journals are vetted that are on that list. And in addition, um, there's information about the journal um, and usually a link to their author guidelines and other information that would be important to you. Well, Sarah, I think you mentioned something so important. Those predatory journals have become so commonplace. And you know, I can tell you that I get emails all the time from those kinds of journals. So I think it's important that new writers are aware of those. So I'm really glad that you brought that up today. So I think a question for either of you, um, where would you suggest that an, an aspiring author start when, when they sit down to write? Do you have recommendations for really those first words are gonna put on the keyboard or put on the paper. Well, I can answer that question. I think really what people should look to do is if you are keeping notes or have your little article journal um, that you're keeping some notes in, you know, just start to develop your thoughts. And I think another important really early step is to enlist the help of a medical librarian so that you have a pretty good grasp of the existing literature on the topic that you're thinking about writing. And then it may be a good idea too, to maybe reach out at that time to someone that may be able to help um, with some mentoring and support, you know, from a published colleague or um, perhaps you'll have an opportunity to participate in some kind of uh, more formal writing program. So, you know, I really think the beginnings are just sort of getting your ideas in place and then getting the support that you'll need to sort of move through the process. And I, I think that's a brilliant answer. And I would add to that, like if you're relatively new or still in contact with your um, faculty from your program, they're a great place to go because especially for manuscripts, I've been a reviewer for a number of journals over the years. And there are a lot of people that will submit manuscripts that look like papers written for a course. And really looking at, if you identify a journal, um, so whichever journal you're going to go with. For, so I'll mention Journal of Pediatric Healthcare because that's one everyone's familiar with. Um, look at the journal and see what types of articles are published there and how they're organized and how they're arranged. And it's very, very different than the type of paper that you would write if you're running off a rubric for a course. 
and faculty members who have published or people at your institution where you work who have published or people in your local chapter who have published are often very willing to work with people to take things that they've started to develop to get that in that proper format because it's a very that's been the thing that's been very challenging for me over the years, because when I went through my PhD, I had a very specific writing style kind of drilled into my head. Like it's gonna, you know, the APA police were after me or, or whatever it was that had to be done in a very specific way. And every journal has a different way of citing references. Every journal has a different flow. And, and really making sure that what you're doing is a match. I, I think that's brilliant. I made that mistake a number of times with trying to take very clinically relevant into the hands of clinicians and sending those to like these high tier research journals. It was an absolute mismatch between the audience that I was trying to get the information into and the audience that I was submitting to, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So let's shift gears just a little bit and let's talk about writing a book chapter. So John, would you share some tips for our listeners on how to get started in writing a book chapter? How do you even get connected with such an opportunity? Well, and this is where I put in a shameless plug for the NAPNAP conference, right? Because I literally was at a NAPNAP conference. I have no idea where it was. So I was at, in the exhibit hall, um, and I went to the Elsevier booth, and Kathy Burns was standing there. And Kathy Burns had been the lead author for the textbook that I work on. And, and to say that she is a giant in the world of pediatric nurse practitioners is a gross understatement. This was someone that was my role model and someone that I deeply esteemed, and she happened to be just standing there and I said to her, I said, oh my gosh, it's such an honor. Like I totally fangirled on her. And I'm like, it's such an honor to meet you. Like, I'm so happy. And I said, you know, I, I love your book. I use it in my program. And I just really admire the work that you do. And I feel like it's really essential to our role as nurse practitioners. And I just want to let you know, like, if you ever have like silly work or help that you need, please let me know. <laughs> I've never asked Kathy what her reaction was. I'm sure she thought like, who the heck is this Midwestern woman that's <laughs> coming up to me? But, but it, that actually turned into a conversation with Kathy about her asking me to do something small for the book. And uh, there was a feature that they were going to add. And, and, she's, it, and she said, you know, would you be interested in doing that? Of course, I was like, Literally, I'll go buy groceries for the team if that's what you need to do, because these were really my people that I highly professionally esteem. And so, you know, oftentimes what happens when we get ready to write a book is we're looking for content experts within a certain area. So we have a sleep chapter and we want someone who's an expert in sleep. And what we'll often do is go out to our connections as editors and who we know, which is largely through NAPNAP, um, and tap people like uh, we've noticed that you've published in this area. So I think, you know, if you're interested in working in textbooks, absolutely reach out to the tech, you know, to the um, publishers and maybe they'll ask you 
to be a content reviewer. Maybe they'll ask you to help with development of some of the ancillaries, like the PowerPoint slides or, or other things. Or maybe, you know, with your experience, that would then get passed on to an editor. And of course, you can always reach out to us directly if it's something that you're interested in doing. Because I think those of us who publish, we, we are passionate, and I think many of us believe that the work that we do is absolutely critical to keeping those who practice up to the highest level of science. And it's also about increasing the visibility of who we are as pediatric-focused nurse practitioners, right? We are not generalist. We are focused on pediatrics only. And so we believe that this work is really critical, and therefore we're often willing to help and bring people in to mentor. Such terrific advice. Great story. So the dreaded writer's block. Any tips to overcome writer's block? Because it is a true phenomenon. Absolutely. And it it happens every single time I sit down to write. It is an absolutely normal part of the process. So the first thing that I would say is when you go like, I just can't do this, whether it's a textbook, an article, a school assignment, whatever. Um, absolutely know that it's normal and there's nothing wrong with you. Because if you don't recognize that, I think it's normal to have that increase your anxiety that you're not gonna get this done. And what I've learned to do over the years, and I'm really anxious to hear what uh, Sarah has to say, is that I will get to a point that I don't know what to say. And I will often in a Word document, just turn on my yellow highlighter and my bold font, and I will write, this is where you need to talk about this, but your brain isn't capable of doing it at this point, and this is what I'm thinking. And one of the tips that I learned really early on is as you're working on a manuscript, save your manuscript like as version one. And then when you make changes, that's version two. And then you make it version three. And I've, I've known people who call it like um, dog one, dog two, dog three, like whatever you wanna call it, right? But save these different versions. And don't be afraid to just type out, I know this sounds like poop, but this is what I know needs to go here and highlight it or do it in such a way so that you get it down. The other thing that I find for me is most helpful is I work off of outlines all the time. So what I, what traditionally I do is I'm really excited about it and that introduction. And I spend all this time on the introduction in the first couple of paragraphs and I write them and I rewrite them. And they're like the most perfect thing that's ever been designed in the history of like written language. And then it's like, I'm out of energy. And by the time I get to the end, I'm like, yeah, I already told you what I did. Like, you know, it's, and, and so what I actually have learned to do is I tackle the most difficult parts of a manuscript first, because that's when I'm most motivated. That's when I have the energy for it. And the things like citing the background that you can do with very little energy, I often go back to later. So don't be afraid to like in writing in your document, just say like, I know this goes here, but my brain isn't working. And then go to the part that your brain is capable of doing. I know other people schedule specific time. Like when I was in academia, there were quite a few people who would say Wednesdays are my writing day. And that is the day that I stay at home and I work on my stuff. I'm, I'm a clinician. 
I could certainly do that. I have never in my entire life been able to find a day that I could dedicate to any one thing and actually be true to it. I would always find creep in other areas. So for me, what I would do is I would just say, I wouldn't put myself under the strain of like, okay, from nine to five, I'm going to write. What I would say is, I'm going to find time at whatever time during the day works for you. Some people it's morning, some people it's night. And I'm just going to say, I'm going to sit down between nine and 11. I'm turning my do not disturb on. So I'm not going to get emails. I'm not going to get texts and I'm just going to get words down on paper. And I block, I tend to do my blocks in 45 minute to an hour periods because that's how my brain works at the end of that hour I have to get up and go do something else even if it's throwing laundry in but then there are other times that I'm like in this groove and it's flying that I might sit there and put out five hours but then if I am to the point that I'm blocked I'm not stuck looking at the clock going like oh my gosh it's 9 15 I'm supposed to be doing this till 11 30 I've blocked out a smaller amount of time so that I can walk away because the way and this, I'm sorry, this is the psych NP, psych specialist NP in me. Um, the way our brain works is that when we have a problem, we often process that when we sleep or when we walk away from it, like the, our brain is still working on this issue. And so it's okay to say like, I hit a block, I'm at my 45 minute period, walk away, go do something else. Cause that may be when you find your answer. And then because I've scheduled another time in an hour and a half to come back, then I come back and do it. Well, thanks, Don. Really great advice about writer's block. Uh, Sarah, did you have anything that you wanted to add about writer's block? I think the only thing I can really think of, and I agree with everything pretty much that Dawn said, and I like Dawn, I don't have usually huge blocks or days just because of my position being 100% clinical. And so, but there are definitely days that I'm off or time periods that I try to dedicate to my professional activities. And so I think what I would encourage people to think about is probably time is the biggest constraint for really any nurse's writing. And so if you have a specific time set aside or some dedicated um, hours in your day, you really aren't feeling like you can produce the writing, you know, look at doing other things on your project. You know, it may be something related to your literature review. You may be able to work on some type of organization of your references or work on a table or a figure that you have planned to include. So I would just encourage people if the writing isn't happening and it is normal some days for that not to be happening as well as you'd like it to be, then I would just sort of move on to another um, piece of my project so that I can keep moving forward and use my time. Perfect, thank you. Okay, so sometimes it's nice to write with other colleagues or um, other professional friends, but could one of you comment on what are those considerations for publications that and do involve more than one writer, whether it's you know whose name goes first or other considerations when writing as a group or a dyad? I think author groups are really common and are pretty much expected a lot of times, especially in research work or quality improvement initiatives. And, you know, often an author group um, works together, but usually there is sort of a lead author 
for some people sort of refer to this as the corresponding author. And so that person kind of takes the lead with the group and, you know, helps make sure that um, there's a plan in place for the paper and that people understand what their um, contributions to the work will be. Um, so I sort of encourage people to determine who their leader will be. And it's really important just because it will be important to people once the final um, manuscript is done is to really talk about author order and, and how people are gonna be uh, represented on the paper. The International Committee of Medical Journal Editors actually has um, a lot of information and guidelines about what an author is and considerations for including individuals for authorship that I would encourage everyone to review that's thinking of writing um, as part of an author group. There's also two nurse editors that have a textbook that they've published in 2019, Baker and Goodman, and their paper's called, their book is called A, B, and C's of Author Partnering. And they actually provide a lot of practical information and even some workshops for people to use if they're considering or are participating in an author group. Perfect, such important considerations. So let's talk a little bit about timelines. So when someone gets to the point, their manuscript is completed, they hit submit. Sarah, what can they expect next? Well, pretty much all journals are on electronic editing systems. And so the papers then will be sent to the editors of the journal. And if there's more than one editor, or in my case, as I work with the associate editor, um, the assignment will be made to the appropriate editor. And then really at that time, it's up to the editor to sort of make a decision whether they feel like the paper should be uh, considered for peer review and sent for peer review. The time for peer review is variable, but on average, it takes about six weeks um, for reviewers to respond and to submit a review. And so I think once your paper is moving on to the point where it will go for peer review, sort of expect that time interval before you'll get um, feedback and a decision tendered on your work. Um, and then once you get feedback and if it seems like your paper is being considered with either a minor or major revision, then really it's up to you to turn around the paper and resubmit. I really suggest doing this as quickly as possible, just so the work will be fresh. And if it does need to go back out for re-review, um, you know, those reviewers will be knowledgeable and be able to keep with a consistent sort of um, editorial team. Once a paper is accepted, um, publishers are really um, into speed to production and publication times. So your paper will actually probably be sent back to you in the format of page proofs, um, usually within days to at most a couple of weeks. And then you'll have an opportunity to review your page proofs, which usually Publishers are looking to have that done within 48 hours of sending those to you. And then once they get your feedback back, it goes on to the editor. And then once that feedback is done, um, people work on um, producing your final paper. And then once your paper is done, it does usually appear on a journal's website as an article in press. 
And um, at that time, if there is a print issue for the journal, it's usually been determined and previously shared with you when it will actually be compiled into an issue. So at most, the whole process um, probably takes three months, but really people are looking to shorten the time and get the information out there as quickly as possible. I'd also encourage people because on these systems, you can follow your manuscript and can see sort of what's happening with your paper. There have been glitches in people's papers just because these are electronic systems where a paper might be lost or a paper may be accepted, but sort of gets lost and never really gets through the entire production process. So please reach out to the editor or whoever your journal contact is, if that's a journal manager, if you have questions or concerns, because, you know, things happen. And I just want to make sure that people know that it's perfectly fine to reach out if you feel like you're not hearing from someone or, you know, not feeling like your paper is moving along um, in the process. Thanks, Sarah. That really helps with expectations of how a manuscript moves from once you hit submit. So Dawn, you know, if someone wraps up a book chapter, what are your experiences or advice on what someone could expect? They, they, they submit their chapter. When are they going to see it in the book? That is a great question. And our timeline is a little bit longer, which is why um, often uh, people won't tend to cite published literature in journals more so than textbooks because in reality textbook information when you get it, it's probably already at least a year and a half two years old um but and so our book i'll speak to our book so our book works on a three-year cycle um we plan for the book send stuff out to authors usually give them three to four months to write their chapters then it comes back, it requires extensive editing and changing because when you're writing a book and when you're writing with more than one person, you don't want it to sound like a quilt. You want it to sound like a unified voice, right? So there's always a fair amount of editing that goes on and depending upon how much that is, it might go back to the person. But for example, we are, uh, we're preparing for our ninth edition and the uh, eighth edition, or we're preparing for the eighth edition and the seventh edition just came out. Um, the seventh edition has been out a year and we're already starting the eighth. Those will be written right now to be turned, they'll be written in the spring to be turned in in final form in the fall of 22 to then be published in the spring of 23. So people will be working in early 2022 on our new chapters, but it's going to be at least a year from the time that they turn it in before all the stuff gets done that may or may not come back to them. It might just be handled internally and that we're making changes so that it sounds similar in consistency. Um, then goes off, gets placed into that kind of PDF version and then changes are often made before it actually shows up a year later. So it's a much longer timeline um, and I remember with submitting a chapter, having it go in and then often you get a copy of the book and then like a year and a half later, the book showed up and it, I'd almost forgotten that it had happened. Um, and obviously in, in journal publishing that we try to tighten that timeline, but, but it depends on the journal. There's some, there are some journals that 
that take 12 months from the time that something gets accepted before it actually shows up in press as well too. <clears throat> wow. I think, you know, definitely longer than some people would have guessed. So, all right. Now we know that not all manuscripts get accepted. And so it can be discouraging for those individuals that are writing papers. So Sarah, do you have any advice? Is it the end of the row when someone receives a rejection letter from a journal? I definitely don't think it's the end of the road um, when you do receive a rejection. And I think the most common reason papers are rejected with the majority of papers being rejected before they're sent to peer review is that the paper isn't submitted to a journal that's appropriate. And that being, you know, that the content or the topic really um, isn't aligned with the journal's vision or mission. Um, and so just take care when you are selecting your title, because I think that is going to be the number one reason that we see papers rejected. And you know, reach out to colleagues too that can help you and be open to the feedback. It is really hard to get a rejection. And sometimes people, you know, are uh, pretty upset once that type decision is received, but it really happens to everyone. And it's really an opportunity for you to look at your work and improve upon it and, you know, find a journal that might be a better fit um, for it. You know, just remember this is an iterative process and it really does take passion and perseverance on the author's part usually um, to succeed with publishing. The other tip I would give people is if you're struggling um, to have manuscripts accepted is to give some consideration to being a reviewer for a journal. Um, a lot of authors have great experience and specialized expertise. And so journals would really welcome your help with that role. And through that process, you are going to learn um, what people are looking for in manuscripts. And after you've had the opportunity to be the one to provide feedback, um, I think you'll be able to improve your work. One of my favorite papers, and it's an oldie but goodie, is what journal editors would like from reviewers. And it was one of um, Dr. Allspatch's editorials in Critical Care Nurse and published in 1994. But she goes through in a really practical way for people what journal editors want from reviewers, but that's also what they want from authors. And so I would encourage people to consider reviewing that paper. Um, when they're looking at um, their work and improving it. Great. Thank you, Sarah. So once published, whether it's a manuscript, whether it's a book chapter, what can pediatric-focused nurse practitioners do to promote their publication, to let their colleagues, to let um, other, other providers know that this information is out there? Do you have any recommendations? Well, I think too, this is allowing me to have sort of um, an opportunity to let people know that at the um, NAPNAP annual conference in 2022, Marty Schwartz, the editor of Journal of Pediatric Healthcare and myself are planning on doing a presentation um, that's titled Getting Your Scholarly Work Noticed, What You and Your Organization Can Do. 
because it is really important once you put the time and effort and energy into doing this um, to have your work appreciated and noticed. And I think there's a lot of strategies out there for authors to take um, hold of, but I think one of, a couple of important things are if you are publishing, most likely right now, you are gonna be required to register for an ORCID ID. And this is sort of just your own unique identifier as an author. Um, you'll maintain your own database at work, which really you can build how you want on the ORCID platform, which is a complementary uh, platform and, and registration process. So definitely do that. And then definitely um, do something in your organization to let people know that you've been published. Um, universities and healthcare organizations are really looking to promote the work of their um, providers that do publish. Add it to your professional profile if you have one there. Add it to the byline on your email if you have it, even if it's for a short period. And if you're active on social media, take advantage of that and um, share your work at, in that venue. For some author groups, they actually put a plan into place as far as what their marketing will be. Um, but definitely think about it and work toward that. Um, if your paper is published in a society uh, affiliated journal, then that organization actually may be also willing to help you with some marketing of your manuscript, to, you know, and so reach out to them because they are looking to promote um, your work for them as well. Excellent, thank you. I have one question for both of you to answer as we wrap up today. So on your journey to become a nurse practitioner leader, what one piece of advice was most impactful for you? And so, uh, Dawn, let's start with you. I, the one piece of advice is um, that someone gave me really early on. A dear friend of mine, as soon as I graduated from my NP program, said, join NAPNAP and get involved. And she said, I could see you being president of NAFNAP one day. And I remember laughing to the point that I snorted at that. Um, and I had to send her, I'm so sorry, apparently your powers are greater than mine letter at one point. But, but basically she said, get involved, go to the local chapter meetings. If your chapter needs help with someone to, like I started out as a, um, chapter treasurer for my local chapter. And I never in a million years would imagine being the person with the checkbook, but they needed help and there were people and it was easy and I did it and it gave, it, I got involved. And I think in getting involved, I met a number of people. And when you do small things, little things, sign up for the NAP, NAP um, continuing education chapter, get involved as a reviewer with the journal you start getting connected to people who are doing things that see you for the work that you're doing and then pull you in. Sarah, what about you? What advice do you have? Well, I was thinking along the same lines as Dawn and really would encourage people to get involved with a professional organization. It may be NAPNAP or it may be one aligned with your um, clinical specialty. I spent the first 20 years of my career in critical care and so was really involved with the American Association of Critical Care Nurses. 
And it really does open doors for you as far as opportunities. That's how I met Martha Curley and worked on her textbook and Mary Franizinski and have been involved in her textbook and served on an um, editorial board of AACN Clinical Issues for a while. So really do some volunteerism. I think you'll have a great opportunity to um, develop relationships with colleagues and be mentored. And then, you know, always remain open to feedback. I mean, it, it, it's hard to do that, but, you know, once you are in leadership roles, people are going to have the expectation, you know, that you're open to that and that you can make changes and continue um, to grow yourself in that capacity as well. Well, thank you both. I would like to thank both of our guests today on Team PEDS Talks. It has been such a pleasure to be joined by you both. This has been such an inspiring discussion for our listeners who are considering professional publishing. For our listeners, get your journal, get recognized for your work, and get publishing. Thank you to our listeners for joining us today. Thank you for joining on this episode of Team Peds Talks, focused on nurse practitioner leadership and career development. Please listen to our entire series, which launches episodes on Thursdays. The National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners has other Team Peds Talks podcasts to share with the pediatric healthcare community, including conversations on child health equity, child and adolescent mental health, and pediatric emergency care. Thank you for joining.